This is a continuation of a video I made in 2008, 12 years ago, and it was called 20 Years a Monk. And now, 12 years later, I have just finished my 32nd reigns, or something like 32 years as a monk. So I thought I would catch you up, if you're interested in this, the, the autobiographical story of Ajahn Sona, it continues. I actually went over the talk from many years ago because I didn't remember what I had said, but I only got up to just about to depart for Thailand. So I had done about 10% of 20 years. So I'm going to have to catch this up. So I left the Bhavana Society in West Virginia at about two and a half years after my ordination and and went to Thailand, the northeast of Thailand, because I had heard of Ajahn Chah and I had heard of the International Forest Monastery, Wat Pa Nanachat. A Thai monastery is called a Wat. And uh, this struck me as interesting. A, a monk who had been there, a Canadian monk who had, was passing through West Virginia. And he'd traveled in, he'd been in Sri Lanka and Thailand, a few other places. And I said, what was the best place you ever had been in terms of uh, good practice and high standards of Vinaya? And if you don't know what Vinaya is, these are the ethical and uh, rules of conduct for monks' lives. And this is not particularly well conducted in many parts of the world by Theravada monks. And there are a lot of rules and regulations. And I was really interested in actually plunging into that life. And indeed, he had a high appraisal of this. So I determined that I wanted to go there. And I never, I'd never been to Thailand. I didn't have any grasp of Thai language. And I went with a Vietnamese monk who had shown up at Bhavana Society. He also was looking for a bit of an escape from the Vietnamese community in the U.S. He'd been in the robes since he was eight years old. He was a novice at eight years old. At 20, he was fully ordained and he had been, he was about 30 then, he had 10 reigns. And he was, uh, had been sort of had many, many duties and uh, demands upon him because the Vietnamese community from the Vietnam War had migrated to the U.S., a very large migration, and they needed Buddhist monks for counseling. And, and of course, many of them had been traumatized and so forth. So the monks were quite overwhelmed by their duties quite often because there weren't very many Vietnamese monks in the United States. Anyway, he, he wanted to go and find out. He'd heard of this wonderful practice, the Vinaya and the forest practice in Thailand. So we managed to arrange an air ticket. So neither of us had money. We didn't handle money. So this kind of process is required that somebody is willing to provide these things. So somebody did. They provided an air Air ticket. I asked just for a one-way ticket. Having never been to Thailand, having no idea what was going there, I asked for a one-way ticket. <laughs> that's um, 
that's an indication of my mindset at the time. I was all in on the monk life. And I wasn't worried about second-guessing myself or leaving any kind of uh, emergency exits. So we got on the plane, arrived in Bangkok, had no idea where we were or what we were doing. And whoever sponsored us had booked us a night in the Rama the Fourth Hotel, which is a weird thing for two months. It's a luxurious hotel in Bangkok. We walked in there and, and uh, they had pre-booked uh, some meals and everything. <laughs> but anyway, we, we managed to take the little airplane to the northeast of Thailand. Again, we had I didn't even know where in Thailand we were going. Northeast of Thailand is the poorest area of Thailand. We arrived at the airport and we had written ahead. Those were the days when you wrote letters. You didn't email anything. There was no internet. So this was 1991. And uh, we, we arrived and there was no one there at this airport. We had no idea where the monastery was. And we had written and they had invited us and we had no idea to, how to get there. And so we flagged a, uh, a tuk-tuk, like a, it's a motorcycle taxi kind of thing with a little carriage on the back. And we couldn't speak any Thai. So we were monks and wat, pa, na, na, chat, we indicated. And finally, we actually arrived there, but we had no money. So we couldn't pay the guy either. And we knew that. And we said, wait, 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 we went in to see Somehow they had forgotten us. <laughs> anyway, they, they managed to find the, uh, somebody to pay the taxi driver. <laughs> and um, we were there. And it was absolutely, we had, we had not checked it even out on a map where we were, anything. So there was a quite a, it was quite an arrival. It was a very enchanting place. It was a good, nice uh, tropical forest very peaceful, kind of stepping into the past. You could see water buffaloes plowing fields on the side as you went along. Basically just rice farms, small, very small little huts and houses. Yeah, we were stepping into the fifth century BC almost. We were greeted cordially, but in a, it's a very austere place, so we were, it was not like a, you're coming into a hotel or anything. It's the first night was just uh, sleeping on a bare wooden floor in a little kuti on posts. And then the next day you go alms round uh, for the one meal of the day. And that was the most painful <laughs> experience I've had for a long time. I came right out of my, my winter boots in West Virginia, my Canadian soft white feet. And we went on, must have been a five or six kilometer alms round across. It seemed as if each stone in the road had been sharpened just for me. It was just like walking on hot coals, terrible kind of, every step was painful. And the, the Vietnamese monk also <laughs> was in pain. We got back there, the monks, and they were, this is an international forest monastery. So the, the monks were from Europe, 
and uh, North America. They were from all kinds of different countries, Germans and English and Australians and Americans, Swedes, whatever. And um, we, they were all quite toughened. Uh, they had been trained there and so their feet were like animal hooves. So they weren't really noticing it, but I, that night the abbot, Ajahn Pasano gave a talk and he happens to be Canadian. So he gave a talk on being uh, kind to yourself. <laughs> well, that was my cue. I said, the next day before the alms run, I, I said to him, uh, that was a very inspiring talk on being kind to yourself. And that alms round that I went was, it's just agonizing for my, I need a couple of weeks to get my feet, some calluses on them. Can I go with you on your alms round? Because the abbot usually goes on a very short little alms round. So he said, yes, okay. He was, that was very nice. So that was uh, my encounter with Ajahn Pasno. So the first experience was uh, one of compassion, kindness, and reason. Uh, so these, obviously this place was really demanding. And I want to talk more about actually how much admiration I have for the, for mostly the young men. They were almost all young men in their 20s who somehow decided they were going to actually sign up for this. They're from European societies, which have lots of economic potential. We went to one of the poorest areas of Thailand, which is a, is was not a, it was more or less a third world country. And they resigned all of their possessions, their future. And they, they could have gone to Thai Watts that would have treated you a bit like a celebrity, a Westerner ordaining, and you would have gotten nice food and everything, but they didn't want that. They, they wanted the, the basically the hardest life you could find. Not all of them succeeded, not all of them lasted, but they all, it was, it's very admirable that young men from a very much more cushioned society could endure this and live up to the demands because the demands were very, very hard. Uh, you know, we were up at three o'clock in the morning, every morning, one meal a day of food that this also had the reputation, that area of the worst food in Thailand. Thailand has a, one of the best cuisines in the world. And a lot of Thai monks wouldn't go there because the food was not good. It was poor farmers and they tended to eat sticky rice as a central part of their diet. And so a lot of sticky rice, not everybody can digest this stuff. It tends to not pass through you very well. And a lot of the, the European monks were, were always concerned about this. <laughs> so we all lost weight. Every single one of us was probably 20 pounds underweight, uh, you know, down to about a 5% body fat ratio. But that blended with the Thai monks, because I, I never saw a Thai monk in that area that had more than 4% body fat. <laughs> These were farm boys. And it's a way of life. Monasticism is a way of life. And it's, there are thousands of monks and monasteries in the Northeast. And that's the kind of the heartland of the forest tradition. And I think probably poverty and austerity 
as a way of life in the farming villages shapes the expectation of how the monks should live. Because if the villagers are sleeping on a hard wooden floor with a wooden pillow, yes, they have wooden pillows, then how, how do you, as a monk, how do you, how is your life any more austere than, than a village person? So short hours of sleep, uh, strong demand for energetic practice, uh, participation in the community. Now, this is the secret of Ajahn Chah's recipe. Ajahn Chah was from the Northeast, a, a village boy who grew up and just inherently a, a genius. And I don't think his formal education, he probably had a grade two or three education. But he understood human nature and he understood Dhamma very well. And... Um, he understood also how to train people and how to shape a community. This is not the case for all uh, monastic communities. Quite often they're monks or solo type people. They don't have a long, much of a communal training sense. So this is the idea is that we would meet and function as a community for months at a time and all have a very refined sense of communal duties, which we would be assigned. Various monks would take up work projects, wood gathering, office work, whatever needed doing. And you were regularly rotated through them without any expectation of preference. And you were to do them within your capacity, which isn't always your skill area or anything. You were just, it was a training to let go of all your preferences and your your sense of wanting to be skilled or the best in something, etc. Sometimes you were, sometimes you weren't. It didn't matter. And then there would be periods when the meetings would be dissolved and you would be told, go off to your kutis and practice alone. So you wouldn't hear the three o'clock bell anymore. The three o'clock bell was a, in a bell tower. You would climb this Monks took turns being the bell ringer. And I actually took quite a few turns being the bell ringer. And this would usually be a, a two-week rotation. And one of the reasons why I took turns being the bell ringer, because you, you had to get up at 3 o'clock, but the bell ringer had to get up much earlier than that because he had to be ringing the bell at 3 o'clock. So I had been a musician before I was a monk. And my one of the reasons I liked being a musician was you didn't have to get up in the morning. <laughs> And I never liked mornings. <laughs> I'm not, that's not my thing. So I thought, I don't, the idea of getting up at three o'clock in the morning is bad enough. What, a, why would I want to ring the bell? And that's why I did it. So I would volunteer on a regular basis to get up earlier than that and go be the bell ringer. Now, this is the way you can train yourself in the spiritual life is that, you know, your, your preferences are, are often your impediments. That's what's hanging you up. So you need to not just go along with your natural tendencies. You have to fight them sometimes. As far as the food went, I didn't really have much problem with it because it was actually better than I had made for myself in my hermitage days where I was not just... 20 pounds underweight, probably 30 pounds underweight. 
So that somebody else gave me rice and I have a good digestion system. So the sticky rice didn't really get to me as it did to Saran, a lot of the monks. Anyway, we persisted there and I went through many experiences and I was extremely impressed with these young men because they were dedicated. And one of the, my first experiences was to arrive at what's called the Uposita, and it's a recitation by memory of the, all of the rules for monks, 227 rules for monks in Pali. And a German monk or a, somebody, one of the European monks, sat down in this stark, simple marble hall, which we recited it in, and uh, sat down and recited it at high speed by memory. About 45 or 50 minutes of talking as fast as you, like sort of like an auctioneer, in, imagine reciting a poem by Homer in Latin or Greek at high speed. So these monks had memorized this thing and were able to recite it almost flawlessly by memory. This is not part of European or American or Canadian <laughs> education. We don't do that anymore. But they had just abandoned uh, our notions and had really just committed themselves to this. This takes, for the ordinary person, this is, it's almost beyond the capabilities of most ordinary people, but if you have a decent memory, it can take you months or even a year to, to memorize it. So I, this is just like being in the time of the Buddha. This is just true dedication and really quite appreciating. And it made me think about like, why, why are all these young men here? I know why I'm here, but they're all here too because something is not enough in the West. The ties were very, very impressed and supportive of us as well. We were very, very touched by this support because they also knew that we're coming from a place where, you know, the streets are paved with gold, like, and we're going to the most austere monasteries. That Why are we doing this? And kind of celebrate that, like, yeah, that's amazing. So they, they also kind of began to reappreciate that they really have something of value if, if these... These Westerners from very wealthy countries are, are coming here. Maybe maybe we have taken the, this Dhamma for granted. Maybe these the monks, you know, we have something here. And this is, we're, we're telling them, you do have something here. You have something here that we don't have. <laughs> we have the material stuff, but it's it hasn't worked out. It's not what you think. So we're also plunged into the... Thai forests and and all of the wildlife that lives there. I lost count of how many encounters I have had with cobras, every kind of poisonous snake, and including big constrictors. Uh, these forest monasteries are full of these snakes. And the, you're completely vulnerable. Uh, monks do not carry weapons at all. And they do not kill any conscious beings, including malarial mosquitoes. And so you're in, enmeshed in a, in a place which is teeming with life. And this is, 
this is what I also did not quite realize how I was being trained by these things. I, if you reach for a cup, you soon learn that there might be a scorpion behind it or a, a frog in it. You never just drink, you, you look first because you've had too many experiences where there's a something underneath or a spider behind it or something. I didn't realize how it had trained me until I came back to the West and I, would, I was reaching for something and I was expecting a, and I realized there aren't any scorpions here. You know, it, it had been trained into me unconsciously. Your only protection is loving kindness and you really are sincerely practicing this because you're constantly in an engagement with these, with these animals at every level, including types of, many, many types of ants that are stinging, poisonous insects. Everything seems to be chemically armed. And also even, uh, I, again, I moved from Wat Pananachat to a, to a place called Wat Kun for a year, and it was full of wild pigs. And these wild pigs uh, travel in herds, and they can be quite dangerous. And faster than any dog I've ever seen. They're, they're unbelievably fast. And, you, and you're making your way through the jungle at 3 o'clock in the morning in the pitch black, usually with a candle lantern. And then there's a herd of wild pigs in the middle of the path, 20 of them. And all you can do is just stand there. And then usually they're very shy, so once they detect you, they... They vanish in a puff of smoke. They're so fast into the bush. But you, you have to consider, well, what if they take a, sh a little animosity? To, you know, <laughs> there's nothing you can do. They're just too fast. Big snakes. I remember encountering a great big, just the tail of a great big constrictor. Just poking out from behind a tree on this path as I'm walking, and I'm thinking, there, it's it could be behind that tree waiting for something, you know, and so I couldn't walk past. I had to wait, and then the tail slithers behind the tree. Now I don't know if it's just waiting behind the tree, so I can't go there. I wait. I wait an hour. It's you know, it's I'm coming back from the evening sitting. It's pitch black, candle lantern. It's about a kilometer through the forest to my kuti. And I sit there for about an hour, just waiting till that snake has gone. And then I, I take a very large detour around the tree. But I, every day then, if I, when I pass that tree, I think that there could be a snake behind it. I mean, the tree must have been eight feet in diameter. So it's a big, it's right near a path. So this is the kind of thing you're just constantly having to be alert and aware and your only option is, you have no other, there are no ways to protect yourself. There's only loving kindness. Uh, you have to, you have geckos and toucays, which are kind of lizard beings that live stuck to your ceiling with great yellow eyes with slit pupils staring into infinity at you from the ceiling. And Rats. Rats can be under the boards. Two Ks are stuck to the ceiling and they're in a perpetual war with each other. The rats come out. When the two K leaves, the rat goes up and eats the two K's eggs. When the rat leaves, the two K goes down and eats the rat's babies. 
And you cannot, if you disturb this order of being, then you will get an abundant superabundance of rats or two Ks. <laughs> so you have to live between these two realms. The two Ks above you are stuck to the wall, the rats under the floor. And you just simply have to tolerate this. And so this is the this is the life of the forest monk. You're enmeshed in nature, but you also find out you can live with nature. And you can cooperate. And they have discovered all kinds of ways to not just kill everything or poison everything. And you can cooperate. And it's very rare that monks are injured by, the, by these beings. It does happen. I, I know two monks that have been bitten by cobras. Both survived, by the way. <laughs> um, so the, the life of the forest monk went on, and I thoroughly trained in that. And I think I was so fortunate because the northeast of Thailand was just starting to experience some of the benefits of new economics and, and they were getting some roads paved and villagers were getting motorcycles and uh, plows and stuff. There are downsides to that as well. The, the villagers were originally plowing fields with these water buffaloes, which would munch off of the, the product of the rice fields, but then they would drop fertilizer into the fields. And so it was a perfect cycle. When they got, they got these two stroke engine plows, which belched gas fumes into the air, produced no fertilizer. And then they had to buy fertilizer and fertilizer companies would sell them based on the harvest of the next crop. And then they started to get into debt with fertilizer companies and they couldn't repair their putt-putt uh, plows. And they had to buy gas for them and they had to get to town to buy these things. And then they had, so they got a motorcycle and then they're back and forth between them. And the motorcycle needed a paved road as so they had to pave the roads and all of this stuff. <laughs> so we saw the, we were just at the beginning of the transition from what, what could have been around the time of the Buddha, the fifth century to, I would say the early 20th century of, of the West in, in a period of a few years, transition televisions came. We could, you'd be on alms round at six in the morning, walking in a village and there would be a television blaring out of a little straw roofed hut. So you can see this incongruous kind of flood and the Western monks were saying, you don't know what you're, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. <laughs> we're here for a reason. <laughs> we it's not because we couldn't afford a color television. <laughs> so this is the feeling of this Thai thing. I stayed until the end of my fifth reign and I got an invitation to come back to Vancouver from a Sri Lankan man, Kirti Senaratne, who had encountered me quite early when I was a hermit a lay hermit, and uh, he had started a temple. And part of his inspiration was that he that I was practicing Buddhism so diligently, and he is born Buddhist, and they weren't doing much. So they decided they better start doing something and import some monks. So he did, and then he wrote me a letter. So 
after your fifth reign as a monk, you're given independence and you can travel and you can live on your own without being accompanied by the teacher. You know, you're, you don't have to live with your teacher. So I, I wasn't actually planning on, you know, permanently leaving Thailand or anything. I, I just thought I'd take an invitation to visit. My parents live in Vancouver, so I thought I'd see them for a bit and see the new community and see how things were going. And so I end up on a plane back to Vancouver. That was an interesting experience. I really hadn't been out of the forest for about three and a half years. And then suddenly on t- in an international airport in a plane, crammed in there tightly with, with uh, a lot of people. But I arrived back in January with bare feet and my robes. My mother and cousin came to pick me up with a pair of socks. And I was taken to the Sri Lankan temple, which was a, a house, a rented house in Surrey. And there was a Burmese monk and a Sri Lankan monk and myself. And the Burmese community and the Sri Lankan community had gone in cooperatively on the, on the rent. And so they had two kind of different ethnic communities in there, both taking turns, offering alms and doing their various things. Very, very different from the forest tradition. So this is the suburban <laughs> experience, which I had no intention of remaining in. Anyway, we, a German monk who I met in uh, Thailand, who had also finished his fifth reign, we had talked about going someplace, what, you know, where did we want to try and so forth. And so he wrote to me and I, I was in Vancouver. So he, he, came a few months later, arrived a few months later, and there was all kinds of issues with visas and all that kind of stuff. But it was interesting. Uh, we had a flood of uh, Canadian uh, Westerners coming, and they were, they were very happy to see a Canadian monk who you know spoke good English with them. And so there was quite a, a lot of interest in, in the Western community. But I wasn't interested in being in the suburbs. So... One day the German monk said to me, where is this hermitage that you talked about that you went when you were a lay hermit? I said, well, it's about a three hour drive from Vancouver into the north, into the coastal mountains. He said, I wonder if somebody would drive us up there. Let's go see that. And I said, sure, if you want to, let's see. And so somebody did volunteer. We drove up there and we arrived and we went in to see it. Now, the old shack was still there. We walked in there, and the, the German monk couldn't just couldn't believe how beautiful the, the nature was there. And it, indeed, it, it is beautiful. Anybody who knows, it's, it's about 50 kilometers or more uh, north of uh, the Whistler, the famous uh, international ski resort in the mountains there. And the, it's just, it was near a, a glacial-fed river, in eight, surrounded by 8,000, 9,000, 10,000 foot mountains, uh, old growth forest. And he said, could we possibly rent this place? By the way, so we had no funds. We're, we, we do not use money and we don't have any storehouses of money. So we went to see the old fellow who rented this place to us and he he had rented it to me. He didn't recognize me. I was now shaven-headed and wearing robes. And I 
reminded him who, who I was. It would have been about six years since I'd seen him. Oh, yes, he remembered me then. And we asked, is this place for rent? And he said, yes. And then we asked, how much? $50 a month. So the person with us put down two months and we had a two months rent and we had a monastery. Now we just had to figure out the rest. And the, the shack, I ended up living there again for three and a half years. It was broken down shack by the Birkenhead River. It had no electricity, no phones, no, just a, a primitive outhouse, no way to get to town. We had no vehicles, no real way of support. There was only about three or four neighbors within several miles of us. It was in the middle of a, a valley at each end of which was a small Indian reserve. And there was a few loggers sprinkled up the valley, a few, you know, various people, just a very small population in a large area. Uh, no reason for being there except that it was $50 a month. And, and in nature, true, beautiful, raw nature. Somehow we managed to survive. Uh, I have a number of stories from that. One of the things, uh, the transference of animal life. So we were, again, <laughs> inundated by pack rats, mice, and no poisonous snakes, but bears, bears everywhere. Bears on our porch, bears everywhere, black bears. But somehow I don't regard bears as much of a problem as poisonous snakes. So I've just been around bears my whole life and we're still around bears, so I don't regard them as all that much of a problem. But at the higher levels, if you walked into the mountains, the grizzlies were there. And so you had to be a little wary of that. Uh, so there were grizzlies up a few thousand feet, and the black bears stayed in the lower elevation. So we we're just surrounded by these large, large uh, animals. And again, as monks, we cannot defend ourselves. We, our only defense is metta. And we, you just learn to be aware and be cautious in the forest. And people discovered us and came all the way from Vancouver, two and a half to three hour drive. The Sri Lankan community and the Thai community would bring food drive three hours to bring us food and offer a meal. And they would leave bags of rice. When we had a steward with us, a one, one young man who volunteered to stay with us in this broken down shack with no facilities whatsoever, very, very primitive, very primitive, very cold, leaky, not meant for winter use. We, we, we had to find firewood and we had no chainsaw. We borrowed a neighbor's chainsaw very kindly neighbor. And we, it wasn't a half an hour before we broke it. And now we could not return it broken. So the, the steward had to hitchhike to town with this chainsaw, 25 kilometer hitchhike, standing on the side of this highway with a chainsaw. <laughs> and then he got it fixed and it cost basically all of, the, all of the money the monastery had. And then we quickly gave it back to that neighbor before we broke it again. We were afraid to use it again but we still had no firewood. I mean, it was a, that's how desperate it was. It was really edgy. 
That edginess, though, is like uh, if you heard my prior, some of my life stories about winter camping and living as a as a hermit in that shack and so forth, you know that I have lived on the edge of things for many, many, many years before that. And so it didn't bother me. It didn't bother the German monk either. He had been in Thailand for about six or seven years and he'd been living in caves and austere little huts. And I don't think he understood what a Canadian winter was either. So he wasn't really particularly concerned, but I had to, I had to somehow arrange all this, but we, there's no way to, we have no phone. We have no way of communicating. The nearest phone is a radio phone at the neighbors. So you can't even write a letter because the mailbox is 17 kilometers away and this kind of stuff. So it's a very interesting situation to be in. You just kind of have to wait. And wait, we did. And eventually people did discover us and started to make contact. The local newspaper in Whistler came up one time and did a story on us. And it became the most popular story. It's called the Peak, P-I-Q-U-E, newspaper in Whistler. And I think it's still functioning. And the, the photographer and the journalist came up. And we got a front page shot with a fisheye lens. I think he was he was attempting to imitate the Rolling Stone magazine or something like that. I am eerily looking, I am peering as a monk in this shack into this fisheye lens, <laughs> front page like this on the peak newspaper. It's a free newspaper, by the way, but it was their best-selling edition. <laughs> so people discovered us uh, in Whistler and we used to get little groups of lifties and various people come up and they asked if they, we could met. So we started a Saturday night meditation. So in the middle of this, of nowhere, in the middle of this shack, it was a Saturday night meditation. The shack, by the way, was 14 feet by 20. That's a little larger than your, I don't know, your bedroom. <laughs> so, but we had sometimes a dozen people come up and join us for a Saturday night sitting. And we used to sit, do all night sittings as well. So the, the Thai, a group of Thais found us and they, they were a mixture of PhD students and nannies. So nanny PhDs. And they would drive up once a month and they would do an all night sitting with us and listen to Dhamma. And then they would offer a meal in the morning and they would, and then as a group, maybe sometimes 10 of them, they would drive back in a rented van to Vancouver. And they became very devoted practitioners and they had been in a Thai Buddhist society and they had not it's taken it for granted but they had kind of discovered Buddhism here with these with this they become intrigued by the practice and they went on to become some of the leaders of Thailand they they did their doctorates in economics and in dentistry and all of these things and chemical engineering and things like that and the nannies were amazing hardy pioneer types who had taken a chance and come to the West and had to do two years uh, as an obligation, Canadian immigration obligation, as nannies to these Western brats. You know? <laughs> but they had their own skills. They became cooks. Some of them bought their own restaurants. Some of them went to work. They got married, etc. They flourished. 
just a, a remarkably uh, tough and enduring and persistent and talented people. So that was a very beautiful interaction. The shack is full of stories, and it, but it was a period of about three and a half years. And of, at the end of the three and a half years, I had enough people. By the, that time, the German monk had gone to Burma, and I was there for the last year on my own, and which is fine with me. I remember this is now almost six years I'd spent in that shack by the river, slightly less than three years as a, a lay hermit, and then three and a half years as a monk. And it struck me as time to see if there was enough support to actually buy a, a piece of land where we could establish a monastery where we could actually do something, you know. So that is the next part of this story. I will overlap in part two, a little more fill in with stories from the shack, but I will show you the transition, the fairly radical transition to the first, you know, monastery we actually owned. And it was in uh, Princeton, BC. And we bought land and we bought a house on the land, which had a telephone, it had electricity, it had running water, it had everything, and it was a radical transition. And by the time we moved there, I think, what was it, I had eight or nine reigns, and I was ready to uh, ordain my first novice, my first monk uh, dependency. So I will leave that for part two, because uh, this story is, is, is a long and rich story of Dhamma. <laughs>